Bob Dole, and this is the Ruthless Podcast. Republicans seek to take control of the House of Representatives. Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate. A liberal MSNBC host warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave. Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front? Fox News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve... Welcome, everybody. Welcome to a Ruthless Variety program. We are here in a very special program today. It's a salute to veterans. It's a salute to the folks who make our country great, who defend us, uh, and letting them know how appreciated they are and how amazing they are. Absolutely. And we have with us, joining us today, is John Ashbrook, a member of the program who's been with us since day one who's uh, instrumental in what we're going to be talking about today in a lot of ways with uh, Senator Bob Dole. Yeah, thanks a lot, fellas. I mean, I've produced the show for over a year now and resisted the temptation to chime in more times than I can count. <laughs> that, that ends today. <laughs> Master of the soundboard. Yep, all the great soundboard the, sound the, effects. The, you perfectly, hear? That's the perfectly timed West Wing, all this guy, uh, a real master of the craft. Totally. You so... Know, we wanted to do a little different program today. Typically, you join us to have a couple of laughs and to have a little break from your everyday existence and, and sort of make fun of the, the liberal world around you. But you got to salute veterans on Veterans Day. We do too little of that as a country. This has been a particularly difficult year for a lot of our veterans, particularly veterans that served in Afghanistan over the last 20 years who... Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think there's any soft way to put it. Watch the end of the war in Afghanistan, and I'm sure there's a lot of conflicted feelings from a lot of people. We want them to know, more than anything, that we love them, we thank them for their service, and and all veterans on a really important day. You know, I think um, it, it goes without saying, we have a lot of listeners with number one show in America, but we also have a growing audience around the world. A lot of them are veterans, um, stationed in various places. I mean, I was looking at the dashboard just this morning, as we all often do, and we have downloads all over the place, in Europe and in Asia. We even had some in Dubai. <laughs> and uh, I think that we have a lot of veterans who listen to the show, and so this is a very special program. One thing I'd like to acknowledge before we get going is what a beautiful radio voice John Ashbrook has. That's the thing. He needs to be on every episode. You I hear mean, that? <laughs> Do you hear that baritone? Oh, yeah. Well, I have a divine right to prima nocte. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a rich, you know, timber. timber. I'm going to exercise that right every time. <laughs> it's like he could end the broadcast with good night and good luck. <laughs> yeah, you're really good. You're really good. But look, we all know and have family that are veterans, have friends that are veterans, have people who live down the street who are veterans. Um, today's the day, folks. Go out and shake their hand. Tell them thank you for everything that you do for this country. God knows we've been focused on all the wrong stuff over the years. If there's just one day where you can separate yourself from all of that, put us back into a place where we really remember what uh, where our freedom is, what it's all about, and who fought and died for it, uh, 
we would we would succeed at at this program. And that you know that's the thing is uh, a lot of our friends, family have served. Veterans Day is 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 a great day to ping them and be like, hey, you want to grab a beer? Yeah, on me. I owe you this one. Totally, totally, absolutely the case. So. Hey, let's talk a little bit about Bob Dole before I, we have an interview with Senator Bob Dole, and I can't tell you what an honor it was to sit with him. This is a man who is an American legend, the likes of which you know, there may not be an equal. His his story is one that that if you're not familiar with, we're going to tell you a little bit about before we get to the interview. Um, and John was pretty instrumental here in helping to to set this up, John. Yeah, I mean, you know, Josh, we've worked together for quite a while now. Uh, We started in Senator McConnell's office on the same day in 2007. And when we started, a lot of the legendary figures were still casting votes. Ted Kennedy was there. Robert Byrd was still there. Larry Craig (laughs) was still there. I'm a wide guy. (laughs) One of the guys who left before we arrived was Bob Dole. And as larger-than-life figures go in American politics, he's bigger than almost everybody else. So this is a very special interview, and we're really happy to happy to provide it. You know, you don't get the number one show in the country without the number one audience, and they deserve special content. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to give them. No question. For those of you who are younger and don't remember Bob Dole in his run for president, you may remember him as sort of a iconic almost a pop culture figure in yeah. the early 2000s after he was done with politics. He's one of the damn funniest people you'll ever be around. And so he had an easy transition into this post-political life that afforded him to do things like be a be original spokesperson for Viagra. Yeah. You yeah. remember that? And I remember it's uh, because, you know, when, when one of the first things he came out when he was an advocate to help uh, guys with prostate cancer, and that can be one of the side effects. So he was, you know, put himself out there as like, hey, folks, you know, if this is a problem, talk to your doctor, get taken care of. He was also a spokesperson for Pepsi. And uh, in college when he visited, uh, I got to see him speak. And he started by saying, hey, folks, you know, um, good to be here. Glad to speak. Uh, I've brought some samples for the audience, you know, that <laughs> you can enjoy. But uh, we couldn't get that many cans of Pepsi. <laughs> And, 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 you know, like that, 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 went nuts. that deadpan humor was so killer. Well, yeah, and uh, parodied on uh, SNL, uh, Norm MacDonald, who recently passed away, um, and Simpsons, a recurring character on The Simpsons. I mean, that's sort of a rare thing to come out of politics and become such a pop culture figure like that. He had such a, I think during his political career, he had such a self-deprecating sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Then in a post-political career, it was just a natural fit, right? I mean, he's just, people liked him. They, they were they were not offended by Bob Dole, even amongst, it was a partisan time, right? I mean, for those of us who lived through the 90s, we, we always act like partisanship showed up yesterday. It didn't. It was a really partisan time. You know, the Clinton impeachment stuff and all of that, which is, we've got some funny things in the interview about Monica Lewinsky and all that, uh, that we'll get, I'll, I'll save for the interview, but my point is is that that his personality formulated over his career and what he had done had just put him in a different echelon of public figures more respected than than almost anybody and he could speak to younger audiences than your typical 50 year old yeah 
as a as a 65 and 70 year old. And, and one thing I would also like to note is, uh, you know, I always kid about how much I do not read. But one of the best books I have read, probably the best one, of, you know, one of the best books I've ever read is uh, called What It Takes by Richard Ben Kramer. And it's about the 1988 uh, presidential election, specifically the primaries, the lead up to it, who all was running their life stories. You know, a lot of people have called it like the American Iliad. It's I mean, it, when you first get it, it's it can be, you know, daunting. It's it's a huge book, but every page, every single word is is absolutely worth it's it. Poetry. And I took away such an appreciation of of Bob Dole, the life that he has lived, his grit, his integrity. Um, reading that book, I mean, it not just, you know, makes you appreciate Bob Dole, it makes you love this country so much of. Uh, th- this is who we are as Americans. We're incredible people. Um, the sacrifices he made, um, dedication to country, family, serving in the military. I mean, I, I highly recommend every single person, you know, grab a copy of this book. If you haven't, give it a read. It's probably the book I've given the most copies of away is, you know, gifts or anytime. Well, in the, in the adversity that he overcame, which I think, you know, back to your point earlier, Holmes, about his self-deprecating humor I, I have to think that comes from a life where you've had to overcome incredible challenge. I mean, this is a guy from Russell, Kansas, who goes and fights in World War II, horribly injured, has to come home and and recover his ability to walk again. Is and like the, the, what happened is and and the timing. I mean, it's absolutely horrific. So it was April of 1945. He's fighting in Italy. This is like days, you know, weeks, if not days before Hitler kills himself. So we're like right at the end and he gets hit by a mortar, right? A shell hits him. I mean, just tearing him up. It was, I mean, it's unbelievable the damage it did to him, you know, from his neck down to his arm. And he was par- he was paralyzed. Yeah. yeah. And, and it looked so bad. And field mechs couldn't reach him because the shelling continued. You know, uh, I think a couple medics died trying to to get there to the location of where his unit had been hit by these mortars. And when they did get to Bob Dole, he was in such a horrific state. I mean, you know, just a mortar has hit this man. Yeah. And uh, they're like, well, he's absolutely done for. So they hit him with, you know, a, a shot of morphine to, you know, help ease his pain. And then with his own blood, they put, they wrote an M on his forehead to let any medics from the units coming up behind them as they pass, no, you know, don't give them another shot of morphine. Hmm. Oh, That's how bad of a state he was in. And then he came back from that. Which is so incredible. And then, and, and he made it back, made it back to the States, made it back to a hospital in Michigan, if I'm not mistaken, Ashbrook. Yeah, that's where, I mean, it's where he uh, forged his uh, famous friendship with Dan Inouye, another American hero that served in the Senate for a long time. And I mean, his recovery was three years. And one of the things that is interesting about the fact that he was uh, about his injury is that he he literally he was he was helping somebody. He was going to help a guy who was working the radio, and like he wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of somebody else, his buddy in, in arms, and like ran into that. He paid the price for it, and um, I mean he still carries the shrapnel in his shoulder. I mean a lot of people don't know that. Um, he, he wore a special, you know, insert in his jacket to make the shoulder look normal. And 
um, I mean, the guy, the guy just went above and beyond. He's a real inspiration. And, and the thing is not just, you know, to have done so much, given so much to the country. He never, ever would, would make it about himself. He, he didn't like talking about his own stories. When he was given an opportunity, I want to say it was the Washington Post, to tell his story of, you know, what it means to serve. He went uh, to Walter Reed and told the story of a soldier that yeah. he met there. He told he told that you know young soldier story, um, and his his right arm you know was was always you know going forward permanently damaged after being hit by that shell, and you know he would he'd famously hold a pen, uh, and when he would shake people's hands, he would use his left hand to not inconvenience them. Yeah, it, it's so amazing. I actually have a story about that. So, the first time I ever met Bob Dole, I think it was two thousand two probably like December and I had just come off of the campaign of Norm Coleman who had just been elected senator from Minnesota and we it may have been early 2003 we were transitioning we were trying to figure out like office space and I was just blown away by being in the building of of one of these senate office buildings and somebody said Bob Dole's coming he's walking this way and Bob Dole in like 2003, he was the 96th nominee. I mean, this is like one of the most famous people in the entire world, not to mention a Republican icon at the time. I'm just panicked, right? I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I get to meet this guy. It's fantastic. And this chief of staff uh, at the time leans over and goes, just remember, you got to shake his his left hand, right? But I'm like, I'm completely panicked. And, I, and he walks in and I'm staring at Bob Dole and I can't remember if he thought if the chief of staff told me it was like offensive to, to shake his left hand Amazing. or not. And, and so I'm like, I'm standing there and Bob Dole, God bless him. Huge smile on his face walks, right? I think he could sense my panic reaches out his left hand, like completely blew through all of the, <laughs> my panic and everything. And he's like, Hey, how are you? Started, I mean, it was like, like he was a friend, you know, which is I'm 22. Yeah. Staff. And this is, this is a guy who was, the nominee for president six years earlier it was just an incredible experience. You know, I'm, I, you know, one of the things, Smug, you mentioned the the what it takes book. Richard Ben Kramer wrote that book. I mean, it's more than just the quintessential tome on um, presidential politics in America. It's actually, in some ways, an, an inspiration for this interview because we have a few friends. I mean, a lot of us know of a few of these, a few guys, some reporters, Jonathan Martin, Ben Smith, uh, Chris Eliza, and some others who went to visit Richard Ben Kramer sort of at the end. He lived in Easton, Maryland or on the Eastern Shore or something. And they wanted to, they, he, he asked them, he said, yeah, sure, guys, come on over, ask me any question you want. And, um, you know, Richard Ben Kramer has, has died in recent years. But, um, you know what struck me about that story. I remember. I just remember this distinctly when those guys went over there because I had conversations with a couple of them after they came back, and I, it just struck me because it was an opportunity they didn't waste. Mm-hmm. And when and when you know Senator Dole said, "Fellas, I insist that you come over here and talk," I was just <laughs> thinking we cannot we cannot waste this opportunity. Oh God, no! Nor would we. It was an absolute honor to go there, and and get his perspective because. I mean, look, Bob Dole's 98, and he's got cancer, and he's the sharpest guy <laughs> you could ever imagine. I mean, that's something. You know, a veteran survived getting hit with a mortar. Uh, he's 98 now, I believe, right? 98. Yeah, 98. 98 stage 4 lung cancer. Stage 4 lung cancer, and he's still cracking jokes. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and wanted to do this. Wanted to do Ruthless. 
which is such an amazing. I mean, think about from the time yeah. when he started. We are not worthy. I'm like, right? Wow. I mean, wow, from we the landed time, this. From the time that he started in politics to doing an interview with the Ruthless Variety program, uh, that spans some time. But I mean, go back to the beginning of the guy's life. Um, you know, there a couple of weeks ago, there's this guy on Twitter. Um, he's a reporter for Bloomberg named Steve Dennis. Some some folks who listen may be familiar with him. On Friday nights, he tweets out a bunch of Zillow listings of right. you know sort of interesting pictures of different Zillow. Um, and he tweeted something from Russell, Kansas, a house that cost twenty four thousand dollars. And um, I saw it, and you know, like a lot of other people in this town that have insomnia in the middle of the night, I was <laughs> like, hmm, out of curiosity. I wonder how close that is to Bob Dole's boyhood home, right around the corner. You could literally throw a baseball from Bob Dole's house to this house that cost $24,000. And I think, um, you know, I, I guess my point is, obviously, you know, $24,000 home is not very expensive, to put it mildly. Russell, Kansas is in the middle of nowhere. But growing up in a neighborhood like that shapes a person in a way that totally. growing up mm-hmm. in New York or San Francisco uh, just cannot. You know, there's no media training. There's no focus group, no like platinum plated Ivy League diploma that can substitute for rising out of circumstances like that. And and he never lost that. You know, I mean, look, I've been involved in Senate races in one way or another since 2002, essentially. And um Every time you had an issue in Kansas, it was a one-stop shop. You just mm-hmm. called Bob Dole, right? What's Bob Dole think about this? And anytime you had a problem, like a significant problem, Bob Dole was going to figure it out. Like he would straighten it out. All the way up until the last election, 2020, he played a meaningful, seriously meaningful role in the election of Doc Marshall in Kansas, um, which was a tight race. But he and it was a, a ridiculously odd primary, and he helped sort of sort that out. Can imagine at this stage of your life still being so committed in not only your home state, but just sort of helping everybody out for the Republican Party try to figure this out. I just I think it's just an incredible testament to this guy's tenacity. But you know, I, I uh, you know Luke Thompson, a friend of the program, I'm apologize for what i'm about to say but i I, i'll take a leader who rose up from middle america over an ivy leaguer (laughs) (laughs) it takes a shot at thompson i love Uh, it a resident our resident kansas expert luke thompson getting uh getting shot at from uh ashbrook on his first appearance well he's a yaley like bush though so (laughs) and 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 i want to i want to also reiterate how rare it is to to get time with him like this you know over the years, over the past few years, the only only way, pretty much, if you wanted to talk to Bob Dole would be to show up outside one of the veterans' monuments in D.C. because he'd be out there to talk to the World War II veterans. Totally. Great that's point. that's how you could find him. He wasn't going on TV shows. He wasn't going on radio shows. His, like, I think his last major public appearance was when President Trump gave him that award. I think that's yeah. it. So, I mean, this is an absolute rare treat, and I'm just unbelievably gr- grateful that— uh, we get to have them. The the um, the last sort of anecdote that I'll give is just a, a testament to his sense of humor. He, I mean, he was just so wickedly funny. His wife, Liddy Dole, former senator, um, who did an amazing amount of things in her career and was an incredibly successful woman, um, was nominated to be transportation secretary at one point. And Dole was asked to be 
sort of the introduction to her service at the, at the hearing, at her confirmation hearing. And, uh, and his line was, my only regret is that I have but one wife to give for our nation's infrastructure. <laughs> 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 Which is just so classic, you know, it's just a perfect Bob Dole. So maybe we should set up the audio a little bit so our audience knows exactly what it is that they're they're in for. You know, the guy's 98 years old. He has stage four lung cancer. There's an oxygen machine running the entire time that this interview is rolling. So you hear some noise in the background. We actually had to cut the interview a few times and we had to do it at a couple of different iterations. But, you know, he's 98. He has stage four lung cancer. He really wanted to do the interview. He really he insisted on it. So, I mean... The man's willpower knows no bounds, and I guess the sort of guy who isn't stopped by an artillery explosion or shrapnel in his body or the subsequent lifetime of disability that came after that is the sort of guy who wouldn't let a little thing like stage four lung cancer get in the way of living life to its exactly. fullest. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. So should we go to it? Yeah, let's go to the interview. Let's do it. Senator Dole, yeah, you, you've lived unquestionably one of the most heroic quintessentially american lives of all time right i mean you are a, an american hero you were a vice presidential nominee senate majority leader presidential nominee an american icon like a cultural icon which is we'll get into in a minute but i think one thing that our ruthless listeners want to know more than almost anything else is is bob dole going to be on the 2024 ticket well, so I'm, I'm planning on it. Good, good, because you can count on our support. Uh, we've been longtime supporters. We'd like to put a crew together and get this campaign started. Well, I've already started mine. So what do you think? Should we start in Iowa or we New Hampshire? Where, 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 you've done uh, this a couple of times. I think I'll start in Kansas. There you go. There you go. Kansas is always the place for you to start, unquestionably. I mean, it is one of the challenges that somebody who has this sort of prolonged exposure on top in politics is is remembering where you came from. And you've never, ever had a problem with that. It's fascinating. Well, I've had a great life in politics, thanks to the people of Kansas. And I wanted to say thank you. And being... A Kansan and know that Kansans like to see whoever that is. I had decided to make a tour of every county in the state just to say thank you, and I did. So as you look at as you look at your life, having been an American hero, senator, vice presidential nominee, presidential nominee, there's basically nothing that you haven't accomplished what do you personally think is your greatest accomplishment well it's not something i did but i think i believe recovering from war wounds is probably the greatest because it took i don't know how many years and then i was sort of normal for a while and now i'm back you know i'm back i can't do a lot over the course of the, your career you've seen just about everything um, how do you ballpark where we're currently at? What's what's your sense about the future of our country? Well, I am an optimist, and I do think we get the country back on track. But it's not going to be easy. 
and it's take a long time. It's taken a long time to get it in the ditch. It's been a long time crawling out of the ditch, but we'll make it. We're just strong people. Your service has obviously allowed you to travel the world over. Can you think back on all those trips? Is there one that sort of sticks out as a particularly memorable experience? Yeah, I went on a trip that took me a couple of countries or more, and of course the important one to me was Milosevic. And so I went to see him, and he said, come on in. We started a discussion. The thing I remember is that the dining room door was open, and everything was ready for lunch. But after we met for a while, I saw the dining room doors closed. Bob Dole doesn't get a lunch. Oh, yeah, I told him it. I had a lot of interest in Kosova, and was headed for Pristina, which didn't, he didn't like at all. One thing I, I, I've read an awful lot about that I, I just don't think it's enough discussion is when Jerry Ford picked you to be his running mate in 1976. And you're a man who's got one of the best senses of humor. And what I thought was, what was, what was that like? What was it like when Ford calls you and asks if you'd be on the ticket with it. Well, as I remember, I don't remember the hotel, but we're all in a hotel, and right beyond my room was well, the guy that was supposed to be called. I was in room A, and he was in room B, and room B had all the action, because I knew he was going to get the call. But for some reason, the president called me. So... We didn't win, but we ran a good race. You did run a good race, and an honorable race, which is which has marked your career in almost every way, from Italy to the presidential ticket. If you can think back on the things that stand out the most in your memory, as you're looking back on your career, do you have a one or two things that stand out as just? sort of momentous occasions that you really couldn't ever possibly imagine yourself being in? Well, I think working with Ted Kennedy on a disability bill, that was important to many Americans who had physical or mental disabilities. And also rescuing Social Security. That's right. That I worked on with Senator Moynihan. Moynihan and Tip O'Neill and President Reagan. Yeah, and we were able to, we were on a commission, but the commission wasn't going anywhere. So Pat Moynihan and I got together and we hashed up a little plan that was acceptable by other members on the commission. The chairman was Alan Greenspan. And he, he accepted it. So those are a couple, wouldn't say notable, but... Oh, big deals, absolutely. Well, they, they're commonly cited today, right? I mean, everybody looks at sort of the relative dysfunction and the inability of leaders to get big things done. And, you know, I remember when I worked in the Senate, Peter McConnell would always point back to the work that you all did with Social Security, that... Bob Dole and Moynihan and Tip O'Neill and 
um, and and President Reagan all got together and did big things. And Mitch. And and uh, and so in retrospect, now what 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 do you think that means? Do you think that the the country is still capable of doing the kind of things that you are so able to do when you were leading the Senate? Well, they're not doing it right now, and I hope they get. Democrats and Republicans working on a bipartisan basis to get things done, which is not happening now. There have been many stories about your relationships. One that has stuck out to me is your relationship with Senator Dan Inouye and sort of how that has tracked your time from a military hospital all the way through the Senate and, and you stayed quite close. Oh, yeah, Dan and I go way back to Percy Jones Hospital in Battle Creek, Michigan. And we knew each other there, and he was the best bridge player in the hospital, and I was only an observer. But Dan was quite a guy and was an American hero, very popular. Obviously, it was a different era, but one of the things that is sort of followed you throughout your career as you've always had a talent for building strong relationships and and using those relationships to, to try to get things done in one capacity or another. Tell us about the time that you invited uh, Nixon to the Capitol in 1990. Well, Richard Nixon was my friend. I can never, I'll never forget bringing him to the Capitol and people lining up from the Senate to the House and back just to say hello or get a picture if they were lucky. And Robert Byrd saw that and he said, is it okay if I do that? I said, that's fine. Nixon was always a Robert Byrd supporter. So we had, I think, three days with President Nixon and I think it inspired him. I really believe that when he left, he knew there were a lot of people out there who were Richard Nixon fans. You mentioned Robert Byrd. Tell us more about your relationship with him. Senator Robert Byrd, when I became Republican leader, he said, we're probably not going to get along, but I won't cause you much trouble or something like that. And I even went to Burt when I was going to contest something he was doing, and he helped me out. That's the kind of a person Robert Byrd was. I remember he kept in his office a work shoe, which was his grandson who had been killed in a car wreck. So he was a, you know, he was a good person as far as I was concerned. Are you surprised a little bit at the leftward drift of the Democratic Party? Because, it, you know, the folks that you were talking about, Moynihan, and your famous relationship with Danny Inouye, Ted Kennedy, even Ted Kennedy, as liberal as he was, was always open to working with Republicans and doing things either in the center right or the center left as the Congress dictated. If Republicans right. were in charge, it was a center right deal. If Democrats were in charge, it was a center-left deal, but there was a deal nonetheless. Are you surprised at sort of this leftward lurch 
that today's Democrats take in terms of interpreting their mandate by, by simply holding control of government. Well, I am surprised, but I know who's pulling the Democrat Party to the left, and that includes the Democrats, the squad from New York. So you still follow the squad? You follow the squad? I follow news. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's just interesting to me, right? Because you've got this iconic person, Bob Dole, who knows who AOC is, <laughs> which tells me everything I need to know about how plugged in you are to our comment, to our, our current governing situation. Well, I try to stay plugged in. I'm still able to help people now and then. Yeah. Because I am plugged in. Well, you've helped us a lot with a lot of different Senate races and things over the years that I've been involved in. Anytime think something gets within a country mile of Kansas, you've got an incredible amount of SWAT over what ultimately happens. <laughs> a lot of friends out there. You sure do. You keep in touch with the Kansas Senators? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've given Roger Mark a few pointers because I worked so hard on his campaign. That's right. You did. He would not have gotten there if not for your efforts. It was that was a very difficult race, and uh, and I remember Leader McConnell and others just eternally thankful for your efforts on that. Yeah, we were pretty well. I wouldn't say effective. We did our best. You did. So <clears throat> one of the things that I'm interested in is the Republican Revolution comes in the early '90s. And you developed this interesting relationship with Newt Gingrich, right? Where you have this incredible productivity in terms of the things that you're able to get done. But there's always this tension, natural tension, between the House and the Senate. But you somehow were able, despite the fact that you ran for president as a Senate Majority Leader, which we can come back to, I think that's impossible today, but the fact that you took that on is amazing. But I guess what I'm getting at is, how was that relationship managed in the 90s? With you? Newt? Yeah, you and Newt. Yeah, well, well, Newt was the speaker and I was Republican leader. He obviously had the power hand and he used it as he should. And I stood by many times. And sometimes I didn't think it was the way it should have been. But later on, after we left the place, Newt and I became good friends. So if you look at the future of the Republican Party, from your standpoint, having seen an amazing bunch of changes over a period of years, much of which you contributed directly to, do we still have hope of becoming a, a Big Tent coalition? And, and being a the kind of governing party that kind that you would be proud of? Well, I believe so. I think the Democrats have gone so far to the left, they've left Republicans with an opportunity, and we're going to try to capitalize on it. We need another Dole ticket to, to lead the way. If, That's if, right. If, if Bob Dole's on the top of the ticket in 2024, who do you think you'd select as your vice presidential nominee? 
Mike Pompeo. There you go. I knew it was coming. You had to be a Kansas guy, right? That's right. <laughs> well, he's a smart guy, too. He is. He is. We've had him on the program, and uh, I don't think there's anybody who's given us a better foreign policy briefing than Pompeo gave us. He's one guy Trump didn't fire. <laughs> so he must be pretty good at politics, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, he was very valuable, and still is, and he's running. Well, <laughs> I hear you're, you're from Bob Dole's mouth to the front pages of the newspaper. <laughs> That's my hope. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I'm all for it. You think Republicans have a pretty good chance of picking up the House and the Senate next year? Well, the House for sure. But we already have enough pickups in the House that we're going to control the House. I'm not certain about the Senate. What would you emphasize in terms of issues? You mentioned that the leftward drift of the Democratic Party had provided opportunities for Republicans. I can think of a few offhand. Do you have anything in particular that you think Republicans really ought to be talking about? Well, they ought to be talking about less spending and less taxes, because the Democrats, that's the way they're going. And I believe we have an opportunity. Yeah, no, it, it, there's plenty of opportunity, unquestionably. One, one thing I wanted to ask you about outside of politics, you're the only politician that I'm aware of that after your career, you became a cultural icon. You had Tupac, the rapper, singing songs about you. You had you were doing Viagra commercials. You became right. you, be, you became this this otherworldly figure that rose sort of above partisan politics. That had to feel crazy at the time. Yeah, well, I don't know. Do what you do. And Did you have fun with it for a while? It was alright. Yeah, well you had uh, the late comedian, recently late, Norm MacDonald, who I know you got close to, played you on Saturday Night Live, uh, recently passed away. But he, he did an incredible Bob Dole. He really was. Yeah, we had a, we became sort of a team. We lost a good man. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, um, he thought the world of you, and I think anybody who has a self-deprecating sense of humor in the world of politics is richly rewarded. And, and you certainly were by the entire country and to many of us. And, and this is one of the reasons why we started this particular program, Ruthless, is we felt like there were too few in politics who could laugh. And one of our role models was you. Well, if you can't laugh at yourself you shouldn't laugh at anyone else that's a that is a great eloquent simple very true <laughs> very true so monica Lewinsky was your neighbor only my neighbor yeah. <laughs> <laughs> important important to clarify <laughs> right Imagine that. So, so, when did you find this out? Was it during all of the... Right, during all the hullabaloo. And I used to take the press, of course, was waiting outside 
I used to take them donuts so they wouldn't go hungry. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Wait, so they were, were they out waiting for you or Monica Lewinsky? Oh, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, wait. It might have had two motivations for keeping the press fed there. That's true. <laughs> oh, I was sort of second string. <laughs> Coming off a presidential campaign, I bet that felt weird. Yeah. So we always ask every guest three sort of fun questions that are outside of the world of politics, sort of get a sense for who they are. The first one is, if you could choose your last meal on earth, anything, what would it be? Biscuits and gravy. Biscuits and gravy. <laughs> that was a quick answer. You thought about that. I've been eating them every night for a long time. That's great. Um, the second question I'm really interested in for you particularly, which is if you never got into public service, if you never got into politics, if none of that ever crossed your radar, what would you have wanted to do with your life? I'd be an attorney in a law firm, being an effective attorney. Yeah, Not you were a practicing attorney before yeah, but I had a lot to learn, and I learned quite a bit. You could probably make a pretty persuasive closing argument these days. Oh, it's these days be piece of cake. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, all right, so the third question's a little, you're going to have to follow me on this because it's, it's unique. It's about what motivates you more as a person. It's the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat. But let me explain that how this works. So people who are motivated by the thrill of victory are sort of the glass half full, consummate optimist charging up the hill no matter what. The agony of defeat crowd is like how Michael Jordan was in basketball, right? He wakes up every day motivated entirely by the mere prospect that anyone could ever beat him. And if, if the thought that somebody was out practicing or doing something more than him motivated him. So what motivates Bob Dole more? Thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Well, I don't like defeat. <laughs> that much is clear. <laughs> I'm not sure it's the thrill of victory, but it's, it's victory. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that sums it up victory. And you know, if you look at most of your old political foes, victory you have, sir. You're still here. You're still plugged in. You're still working. I hear all the time about what you're up to, and most of them are no longer doing it. Well, I still carry on some activity. You do. Do you have any message for the next generation of Republicans? People who are going to take the leadership of our party forward into the next generation? Well, we have to be an inclusive party. Anyone is welcome in our party if, if they agree to the Republican standards like lower taxes, less spending, and keeping programs like Social Security, 
a lot. You bet. Well, sir, we just want to thank you for your service and everything that you've done for this country, our party, and appreciate the time that you've given us. Oh, well, thank you. How can you not be incredibly inspired by this man? Uh, that's an incredible interview. <laughs> I mean, it could be the best one we've gotten. I mean, <laughs> seriously, we are so lucky. Yeah. We really don't deserve to, to, to be so fortunate to totally. have that. No. Well, we're just no. lucky to be able to uh, have him on and share the story of his life because, um, you know, so many in his generation aren't around any longer to do it. You know, I, you know, when I was a, a freshman in high school, I, I did this oral history project where I got to in, interview my grandfather who fought in World War II. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he was a 19 year old, um, you know, putting rivets on airplanes in Detroit, gets drafted. You know, he's at Fort Sheridan. Uh, a couple months later, he's, you know, fighting in the Battle of the Bulge, hmm. 19 years old, you know, and, um, you know, having that opportunity to get that story from him, a story which he'd never really told anyone in his life. You know, he came back from World War II and, you know, what he always said was like, you know, people want to talk about the ball game. They didn't want to talk about what happened over there. Yeah. And so to have that opportunity, you know, I was very grateful um, and so I just say that to say, you know, especially for our, our younger listeners, if you get that opportunity to get the story of someone who's had a life like that, you know, do it. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I think that Bob Dole's story is more than just an inspiration of Midwestern kids who want to rise up. I mean, his story is necessary mm. to the future success of our country. And if, if we do not have leaders in the in the days ahead who recapture the sort of heroicism that he displayed on a daily basis in his life, the sort of iron will that he, he just, he just said, you know, there's, it's an impossible problem. I I don't care if it's impossible. I'm going to solve it. His, his mindset is necessary to the future success of our country. And zero entitlement. Zero. Right. Which is such a stark contrast to the culture that surrounds us now where people think they deserve all kinds of accolades simply by showing up. You know, this is a guy who, Despite, I, I mean, you would you, you could argue one of the most unbelievable lives that have ever been lived in mm-hmm. American history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Despite that, in '98, you go to his house. I I can't get him to brag on himself even a little bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I came at it every possible way I could about you know whether or not he could just sort of. Say, yeah, I'm pretty good at that. No, he just won't do it. He's not entitled to anything. He thinks that it's, you know, it's it's earned every day. And it continues to be earned every day, even at 98. Right. What a remarkable human being. What a guy. Totally. Yeah, and I think I think before we close out here, we, we would be remiss if we did not say a thanks to Pia Pyle. You know, we got a lot of friends of the program, but we consider Pia family of the program. Absolutely. And Pia, we just cannot thank you enough for helping us out with this. Yeah, thanks for, for the help with the interview. And the Dole Foundation, you know, um, you know, they support veteran and military caregivers. Give them give them a look. Absolutely. Um, doing very, very important work. I'm glad you mentioned that. He also, he, he's got a, a an outfit in Kansas that is where, the, where all his papers are and, and everything that, that really, if you're in the neighborhood, you should check out because it is a living history unquestionably uh the last thing i'll say ashbrook uh upon bob dole's recommendation 
he uh, suggests we go take a look at Monica Lewinsky's old apartment. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll have to check it out on another episode of Ruthless. (laughs) Yeah, I think so, too. Again, thank you so much. It's an absolute honor to be a part of this to, to Bob Dole and everybody around him. Thanks again, and thanks to all the veterans. God bless. So, I mean, you know, incredible episode. Thank you so much to everyone who has served our country, given so much. Truly, words can't express the gratitude. Uh, we have for you. So until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Tuesday. Stay ruthless.